Well, good morning, everybody. We certainly want to welcome those of you who might be visiting with us today because you're with your mom. So welcome here to Bachelor Creek, and we hope that you feel uh, inspired in your walk with God and that you feel welcomed in the presence of Christ with us today. I'm going to jog everybody's memory back. Uh, about two months ago, on February 10th, I gave a sermon where we talked about how anything is possible with God. And I posed a question to everybody here that went like this. If you knew that God would do whatever you asked him to do at this point in your life to meet whatever needs you had, what would your request be of him? And I not only threw that question out, but I gave you a chance to respond. And that's the day that everybody came in and he received one of these little boxes. And inside these boxes was a little post-it note that we asked you to put that one prayer request to God that if you asked him, knowing that he would grant that request, what would it be? And hundreds of you turned in requests. As a result of that, we took all these requests in these boxes and made this little tower over here, what some have come to affectionately known as the snake charming basket, what this looks like over here. It's meant to be a tower. There's not a king cobra in there. And I'll tell you what, for the past couple of months, every week, some of us here at the church and leadership, we've just peeled off a couple of those boxes and we make that the focus of some of our prayer time with God. And I'm going to tell you what, folks. It's been eye-opening for me. Because inside of each of these little boxes is just a snapshot of some of the things going on in the lives of the people here in this church. For some of you, it was just one word. For some, it was one phrase. For some of you, one sentence. And some of you had to write one paragraph on a little post-it note because that's where you were just at the need that you had, but all of them asking God to do something, intervene on my behalf. And here's what I've realized the common denominator has been of so many of these prayer requests in these boxes. The common denominator of pain, of hurt, where you're asking God, God, heal a marriage that's crumbling God, heal a womb that's empty. Heal a child who's making really, really poor decisions in life right now and set them on a better path. God, heal a body that's breaking down and doctors don't have an answer for me. God, heal a mind that's deep in the darkness of depression. I just want to enjoy life again. God, heal a heart that's having a hard time forgiving the woundedness and betrayal of people who I thought loved me. God, please do something. And while many of us have done the wise thing to bring our request to God, as Scripture tells us to, a lot of people aren't going in that direction in the world. You know how I know that? Because over the last decade, a couple of the top-selling books in our country have been written by atheists who don't have much to say good about God. Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, Christopher Hitchens in his book, God Is Not Great. You know, I used to think that if people said that they were an atheist, that they were just trying to be kind of cool, trendy, avant-garde, or a little bit anti-establishment, right? Because it just wasn't the norm. But the more I sit and listen to what atheists have to say, their argument doesn't stem necessarily from science or lack of proof. But a lot of their argument stems from a great amount of pain and suffering that they've dealt with in their life. And here's the conclusion they've made. The existence of such deep pain in my life 
has to prove the non-existence of a loving God. And isn't that what pain and suffering does? Pain and suffering forces us to confront our perspective of who God is. Nothing shows your theology more than when you're here in the furnace of life. And I think I can speak for the vast majority of the people in here today and say that that our perspective of God would, would look like this, that we believe that God is omnipotent and he's sovereign and he's in control and that he's loving. But a lot of people in our world, friends, would tell you that because of the pain that they've experienced, they would say, well, God, yeah, he may be loving, but he's not in control because if he was in control, then he should have done something about this in my life. Or they might say, God might be in control and completely sovereign over the affairs of man, but obviously he's not loving because a loving father would not let a child go through what I'm going through in life. So let me share with you this morning, kind of bit by bit, as we make our way through the problem of pain and suffering in the world. And I'm just going to tell you, folks, there are whole theologies around this. There are whole sermon series we could do on this. I'm just going to be scratching the surface today on the idea of pain and suffering, okay? But I want to start off by showing you a symbol that's an iconic landmark here in the United States. Maybe it's somewhere that actually some of you have visited before. Why don't you go ahead and show us that building, Maddie, if you would. Any of you know what that place is? What is it? Wow, did you guys take like U.S. history or anything? How many of you have been to that building before? You know what it is? What is it? Independence Hall, right? How many of you knew that, by the way? Man, okay. I've got my work cut out for me this morning. So Independence Hall, right? In in that building used to hang the iconic Liberty Bell, the one with the big crack through it, all right? Used to hang there in that tower, and it rang out, and it was the Liberty Bell. Within the walls of that building, the forefathers of our country, they argued and they debated and ultimately framed and enacted two of the most important documents dealing with our freedom, the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. So that building and everything that happened there and the things that were written in it and the bell that hung in it is symbolic of everything that we cherish as Americans. We love our freedom. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, right? We are freedom freaks. In fact, that's why people all across the world are trying to do whatever they can to make it into our borders because they crave and they hunger and they thirst for the kind of freedom that we enjoy. But there's somebody who values freedom even more than we do. You want to guess who that is? It's God. And by the way, Just in case you ever wondered, why didn't God create a world that was free of pain and suffering and tragedy and heartache and crime and violence and abuse and suffering and everything that we just deplore about this world? Why didn't God create a world that was free of those things? Shorter answer is this, he did. He did. In its created state, God made a world that was pure, untainted, and faultless in every way. That's why when God created it, he declared it is what? It's good. And then he created mankind. And he looked upon his creation of us and said, it is what? Very good. So he creates 
a good world. He puts a very good mankind in it. And the world experienced at that time, humanity experienced a cooperation with creation, creation and mankind working together. And what the Jewish culture would tell you was this perfect world of shalom. You know what shalom means in, in Hebrew? What does it mean? It means peace. It means unity, tranquility, wholeness. It means the coming together in perfection, right? And that's what we enjoyed. So much so that Adam and Eve could go lap up water from a, a running stream and not have to worry about getting giardia or any kind of stomach parasites or any bacteria that would make them sick. They could sit down next to a lion, not worrying about it. That lion at any moment was going to turn and maul their head off, right? Adam didn't have to worry about Eve putting on a dress and saying, does this dress make me look fat? He didn't have to worry about that. Because they weren't even wearing clothes then, right? There was no cellulite, no mosquito bites, no sunburns, no illness. There wasn't any of that. Just this perfect world of, 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 of the planet and humanity working together in this shalom, tranquility, peace, unity. But on top of giving this amazing world to humanity, God gave us as well freedom. Freedom to choose good, bad, right, wrong. And sometimes people including you, including me. We use that freedom to make very evil, very, very selfish choices. I have the freedom to use my hand to go pick up a gun and bring hurt into somebody's life. I have the same freedom to use these same hands to help somebody in life around me who is hurting. I have the freedom at any moment to cloud my mind with a drunken binge and then get behind the wheel of a car and wreak havoc in somebody's life. I also have the freedom to use that same mind that God has given me to help solve the problems and the challenges that face humanity. I've got all this freedom at my disposal. In fact, there was a time in our not-too-distant past where we saw the very worst and the very best of freedom on the exact same day. You want to know what day that was? Show us what picture that was. You remember that day? It's almost like that we were, we're frozen in time, right? And our minds go back to that day. And you know what that picture is symbolic of right there? That is, that is freedom at its absolute worst. That is terrorists knowingly getting into a plane with weapons, storming the cockpits, killing the pilots, and then using in pure evil their newly acquired piloting skills to careen those planes into the buildings where they could bring about the most amount of death and devastation. Freedom at its absolute worst. And yet we saw freedom at its absolute best that day as well. That as hundreds and thousands of people are trying to make their way down stairwells that were crowded to get out to save their lives rescue workers and firemen and whoever was at hand walked into those burning buildings and walked up the stairs while everybody was walking down even though they had absolute freedom to not go up those stairs. But in their freedom, they chose to do what was most noble. So on this day, we saw the absolute worst and we saw the absolute best of the God-given freedom that we call free will. So here's the question people have. 
If it's freedom that ultimately leads to, free, or to evil in our world, why didn't God just eliminate freedom from, from mankind's capacity? Why didn't he just not give us free will? Here's why. Because God is love. And in order for love to be authentic, it must be given the choice to love or not to love. Love is always a choice. So as you consider pain and suffering and evil in this world, remember that back when God created it, it was good, it was perfect, it was whole, it was tranquil. There was a cooperation together between man and creation. But mankind came along, and we have the capacity to make decisions that are evil, and we do. And one another is affected by the, in, the decisions of the individual at times. And I don't know about you folks, but this helps me to understand, to grasp at little deeper levels the answer to this question, that if God is great, how could he allow pain and suffering in this world? Now, another question that people have boils down to this, that if God is good, why would God let bad things happen to good people? Well, let's just acknowledge some things from the gate that, that Scripture teaches. And hopefully this isn't new to you. But the world teaches, or the Scripture teaches, and Jesus affirmed that this world, while it is not under the control of Satan, this is his domain. Scripture says that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. He's on the prowl. And Jesus said this. Jesus said Satan's, his directive is threefold. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. All of those are going to lead to suffering. If I'm stolen from, I'm going to suffer. If I'm destroyed, I'm going to suffer. If I'm killed, I'm going to be suffering in that process. Even Paul, when he's writing his letter to the church at Corinth, talks about this thorn in the flesh, this problem, this pain, this suffering in his life, how it had satanic roots behind it. When Jesus encountered people and he helped them and he healed them, he identified that the core of their problem was demonic activity around them. In fact, when Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 10, here's what he says, that Jesus came to heal those who were under the devil's power. That's what he said. So we've got to remember, friends, we can't discount that you and I have a mutual collective enemy. And he's on the prowl. And one of the number one tools in his arsenal that he can get you to do to run from God instead of running to him, to question your faith instead of digging deeper into it, is the problem of pain. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to this. How Satan looks for the most righteous, godly man on earth, and he sets his sights on him, and he's bound and determined to bring him down. What's the name of that book? Job. And we know that in that whole story, God is reigning sovereign. God is in control. God limits what Satan can and cannot do to Job. But Satan thought, if I just bring pain and suffering in his life, he is going to curse God. Because that's what so many do. But he wasn't successful. And here's how you and I think. We think if I were God, good things would happen to good people, and bad things would happen to bad people, right? 
That's why it confuses us. When we see good, godly men destroyed by injustice. That's why it confuses us. Who the best Christian dad I know gets cancer and dies at 35. That's why we leave our heads scratching when we can't figure out how one of the most honest businessmen in town completely loses his business because of a local economic downturn. We're not just confused by things. We get frosted by things. We get irate at things. We can't understand how is it that drug pushers and wife beaters and child abusers and lazy employees and arrogant colleagues, why are they the ones always getting ahead? The question asked throughout Scripture. Read the Psalms. The psalmist asked the exact same question, and here's the answer. I know it's not a good answer, and you're not going to like it, but it's the truth. Sometimes these things just happen because we live in a world that's so, so fallen, and it does not discriminate between good and bad. Some of you might remember a story that came out of Chicago a few years ago. The story revolved around this, this uh, little tour boat that was traveling down the Chicago River on an architectural uh, tour, looking at some of the great skyscrapers and buildings in Chicago. There was about 100 people on this boat, and they were coming up to the Kinsey Street Bridge. But unbeknownst to them, on the Kinsey Street Bridge at that time was a tour bus, a pretty massive tour bus, with a pretty renowned group of people on that tour bus. It was the Dave Matthews Band. It was their bus. And we don't know why, but for some reason the driver of the Dave Matthews Band thought it would be a good idea that while I'm on a street or on a bridge right next to a river, I'll go ahead and press the button for the release valve that will dump 800 gallons of human sewage off the bridge into the water. So the button's pushed, the little tour boat's coming up under the Kinsey Street Bridge, and they see uh, this cascading waterfall coming down the side of the bridge. Only it's yellow and brown, okay? And not only did they see it, but when they got under it, there was no way of avoiding it, and a lot of that stuff fell on their heads and got in their mouths, and some of them had to go to the hospital to get medical treatment to prevent other things from happening to them because of raw human sewage dumping down on them. You know, don't you think it's kind of weird, though, how this happened with the Dave Matthews Band bus? And Dave Matthews uh, Band has a couple songs, one of them called Waste, and one of them called Don't Drink the Water. <laughs> but I think that this story just proves something that that scripture testifies to time and time again. Sometimes it rains on the just and the unjust. Sometimes bad things are going to happen in your life no matter where you think you stand on the goodness scale. Bad things are going to happen to you and nobody's exempt from it, friends. Some things... We bring about in our own lives, don't we? Through the poor decisions we make. It's just the idea that we're going to reap what we sow. That if I smoke all my life, my lungs are probably going to get shot. If I'm a hard drinker in my life, it shouldn't surprise me when I find out from the doctor that my liver has shriveled. If I'm dishonest in my relationships and I lie, I shouldn't be surprised when those relationships disintegrate. 
If I'm lazy, I shouldn't be surprised when I get fired. If I cheat on my wife, I shouldn't be surprised if she says, we got to get attorneys involved and I'm taking you to divorce court. We shouldn't be surprised by those things. They're just the consequences of poor, selfish, evil decisions that we make, right? But there are some things that happen in life that aren't the result of my decisions or your decisions. It's just the result of living in a broken world. I told you earlier how this world was created perfect in its original state. But you just go back to Genesis 3, and here's what we read, that when sin, when rebellion against God occurred, it affected every fabric of creation. That now we have things in our world like natural disasters that can wipe out whole communities and human lives in mere seconds. Now we have things like diseases that plague us that were never meant to be part of this world, but through the genetic breakdown that happened in human beings as a result of sin, we now have these things to deal with. We've got natural disasters and we've got birth defects and the genetic code being all messed up in several different ways. Just the results of living in a fallen world, friends. And scripture speaks to this. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8.20. For the creation, the whole world, everything that God spoke into being was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, listen to this, because this describes you and me and even the world that we live in. It's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Friends, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And the good news that we have today, folks, is this. Jesus himself did not exempt himself from that kind of trouble. And he was without sin. He was the model of goodness and holiness. And yet in all the history of the world, no one has been the victim of more badness than Jesus himself. He knew that he had a destination with the cross. He knew that pain and suffering and agony awaited him. And he classified himself among those who would suffer. Now, I got to tell you something, folks. When I read that, when I, when I see that in the Gospels about Jesus declaring of what he knew was going to await him at the cross, you know what that does for me? It brings me great comfort in knowing that the God I worship can identify with my pain, my sorrow, my heartache in this world. And you have a Savior who does, I assure you. He relates to the relational pain that you experience. Because Jesus had people who were as tight as could be with him, who betrayed him and abandoned him at the time when he needed them the most. Does that ever happen to you? He related to the pain of injustice. You ever been wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, wrongly punished for something you did not do? Jesus knows that pain. He knows the pain of rejection. Scripture says he went to his own and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. You ever feel like an outcast from your family or your tribe? Jesus knew physical pain. 
so that when the doctor asks you and you're in the evaluating room on a scale of one to 10, how much is your pain? And you say, it's a 10 or more, it's excruciating. Jesus says, I've been there. I know what physical pain feels like. I know the pain of being scourged to the point of death. I know the pain of crucifixion, I've been there. Jesus knows the pain of aloneness. Do you remember that time on the cross when people are spitting at him and mocking him and he cries out in a moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utter, complete aloneness. You ever felt that in your life? Like nobody's there for you, nobody understands, it's just you. Jesus knows that pain. So, no one, despite how good you think you are, in fact, let me give you a little secret. Scripture says, there is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who does right. So no matter how good you think you are on the goodness scale, friends, not a one of us is exempt from pain. And the cross is proof of that. So here's the question we're left with. What good can come out of suffering? If I were to provide for you a symbol today of victory, I, I kind of wondered, like, what would, what would resonate with you the most if I had a, a picture of victory? Maybe I could flash up on the screen a picture of the 1972 Miami Dolphins, undefeated se season, Super Bowl champions. The 1976 Indiana Hoosiers, the last college men's basketball team to go undefeated in the season and win the NCAA title. Maybe I could show you a stadium where lots of victories and uh, touchdowns and three-pointers are shot. Maybe I could show you that headline from World War II showing the sailor kissing the beautiful woman in Times Square with the wording on the, on the front page newspaper, the war is over. A sign of victory, right? But really, the best sign of victory that I have to show you today is something that some of you already have on you. You're either wearing it in the form of a necklace, you've got it tattooed on your arm, or you're looking at it as it stands risen above me. What's that symbol, folks? It's the cross. See, what the cross teaches, what it preaches, what it proclaims is this idea of winning through losing. The cross symbolizes Christianity. Now think about this. The cross in its day and time was the most feared instrument of death known to man. And yet when you and I look at the cross, the reason why we wear it around our, our, our neck, the reason why some tattoo it on their skin, the reason why we hold it as icons in our church, because we know that the cross is a symbol of death, but God brought life. That that was the epitome of hopelessness for every man and woman who hung on one, but God brought hope out of it. That that looked like the greatest loss that has ever been in human history, and God brought about from that cross the greatest victory mankind has ever known. Amen? That's why we wear it. That's why we tattoo it. That's why we hold it up and hold it high. Because God showed the world, 
the principle of winning through losing through the cross. So good things can happen through the most seemingly horrendous things in our life. Again, let me take you back 18 years ago to that fateful Tuesday morning, 9-11. We watched on our televisions. We were glued as we saw buildings set ablaze, as we saw human beings jumping, choosing between burning to death or falling to their death. We saw buildings collapsing on those who went in to save those who were perishing. We saw the memorials Pictures that people had posted all across the downtown and sidewalks. Pictures of loved ones wondering, has anybody seen them? Tell them there's someone looking for them. We want to be reunited. We saw that. We saw the brokenness. We saw the devastation. We saw the death on that Tuesday. And then strangely enough, or not strangely enough actually, on the following Sunday, American churches were brimming with people who are looking for answers about the meaning of life. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Where can we find hope in a world that looks like it's in such despair and looks so unredeemable? And here's what I can assure you of. God used a tragedy like that. And he saved countless souls for all eternity. Because those people who went into those churches found the comfort and the salvation that the human heart longs for in the person of Jesus Christ. A church visit they would never have made had it not been for the pain and suffering that our country was mutually feeling on 9-11. But that's what it took. Scripture says this. Better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Why? Why would that be better? What crazy person said that? Here's why they said it. Because death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. And that's exactly what we saw played out at 9-11. Everybody realized, I'm going to have my own end. I'm going to have my fate. I'm going to have my appointment with death. Now, how should I respond to that? Some of you as well might be familiar with the Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias. We've got a picture of him. Some of you might recognize him. How many of you are familiar with Ravi Zacharias? If you aren't, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to get yourself acquainted with him. He has some amazing videos on YouTube. He's got some great books. He is probably the most famous, world-renowned Christian apologist using logic, reason, philosophy, scripture, to make his case for the Christian faith. But Ravi Zacharias, part of his story he would tell you is this, that it was during the deepest, darkest times of the, as a teenager that he tried to take his own life, that he poisoned his body hoping to end his suffering, his feeling of despair, his feeling of disappointment, his feeling that, that he just couldn't go on. As a teenager, he poisoned himself Thankfully, people found him. He was able to get to the hospital and get treatment, and he was hovering between life and death. But in the time he was in the hospital, there was a pastor who brought Ravi Zacharias a Bible. And through the scriptures and through that encounter, 
Ravi came to faith in Christ, and it changed his life forever. But that encounter would never have happened. That Bible never would have been given. He would never have been introduced to Jesus had it not been for the darkness and the desperation that led him to do what he did and end up where he was at. That it was in the deepest, darkest time of his life that the, that the light of Christ shined the brightest for Ravi Zacharias. So the cross is a reminder of the winning through losing principle. Do you know what else the cross reminds us of? That our darkest days are not going to last forever. And I know that as I speak this morning, I just know because I read what was on those boxes and I've had conversations with you and you've had conversations with me. I know some of you are in a season of suffering that seems like it's never, ever, ever going to end. So I'm not going to say anything that's going to minimize that. I'm not going to be cliche about it. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you hope this morning. I want to point you to a scripture that was written by the Apostle Paul. And I want to tell you why this man had credibility to write the things that he writes. He was a man who knew persecution. He knew what it meant to be wrongly accused and imprisoned. He was a man who had experienced beatings. He was shipwrecked. He knew what it was like to go hungry and thirsty and to be homeless. And I want, you to tell, I want to tell you his perspective, what it was he shared about his suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And when he says we, he means the church, the people of Jesus, the people of the cross, the people who win through losing. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, here's what he's saying. In, in, in a few years of this mortal existence that we have and the pain and the heartache and the suffering and all the ugliness of, of life that comes our way. It's all gonna be so worth it. It's gonna be so worth it when we're experiencing forever the joy, the bliss, the delight, the love, the fellowship and the kingdom of God. We're gonna look at this time in life, this season of life is just like a mere pinprick on the continuum of time. And the glory that we're experiencing and the love that we feel and the redemption that's ours and the presence of Christ, our King forever, is going to make anything in this world that we go through well, well, well worth it. And God, and only God, has a way of taking the worst possible thing that could happen in your life and my life and making it into the best possible thing if it ultimately leads to him. And someday we're going to realize whatever price we ever we had to pay, whatever scars we bear, whatever happens to in this life is well, well, well worth it if in the end it brings us to him. Here's what I want to do. Those of you who are going to prepare communion for us, if you would just kind of quietly get up and go make yourselves ready to serve communion for a moment. For the rest of us, I want you to focus on something in our remaining time. I want you to focus again on that cross that hung the bloody and the beaten and the wounded, 
body of the sinless one who we call Jesus. That cross wasn't the end of Jesus. We celebrated a few weeks ago, Resurrection Sunday, where where God took the worst thing that happened in human history and made it into the greatest victory for all mankind. And we know that after he rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that he appeared to hundreds of different people at various times. And here's what's interesting. The biographers of Jesus, those people who are writing about his life story, mention something about Jesus' resurrected body, and that is that his body still bore the scars of crucifixion. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because we can just read through that and it just seems like a minor detail and we'll just buzz right over it as we read it. But I want you to think about something, okay? Because we've got to ask ourselves why. Because I would think that if Jesus rose gloriously and victoriously over the grave, that the least we should be able to expect from that was a body that was perfected, that showed no scars, no harm, no marring at all, a perfected, glorified body. And I, I don't think that I can prove this, but it's a gut feeling that I have that maybe, just maybe, the reason why Jesus kept those nail scars in his body was because when he was meeting with and appearing to this group of believers, that the last image, the last memory he wanted them to have of him was this. This is how much I love you. This is what I was willing to endure for you. And you're going to go into the world and you're going to get some of these. Because the world's fallen, because people can be evil, you're going to end up with your own. And when you do, I want you to remember that your God has scars. And he's been there where you're going to go, and he's felt the deepest kind of pain that you're going to feel. I want you to remember that. So as we go into this time of communion, friends, I don't know where you're at on the continuum of suffering. Maybe it's low right now. Maybe you're at maximum capacity and you don't know how you're going to endure anymore. During this time, though, might be a good time for you to thank God. Thank him. That even though in our freedom we choose evil, he somehow works things for our good and redeems us. To use this time to come to God and to ask him to help me, Lord, to see the winning through losing principle of the cross because things right now aren't making a lot of sense. Some of you who are here today You've used your freedom, your, your free will, your God-given ability to choose, and you've said no to God. And maybe today's the day when you understand your suffering, maybe a little deeper level, and you don't just understand your suffering, you understand that there's a God who suffered as well, and he gets it, and he identifies with you. Maybe this is the day that you reach out to him and you ask him to be your Lord and Savior.
And we're going to provide an opportunity for you to do that right after communion. So why don't you just bow with me now and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to your throne of grace. We acknowledge, Lord, through free will, through freedom of choice, we've perpetuated evil, wrongdoing, and sin in this world. We've hurt ourselves. We've hurt others. We've hurt you. And God, thank you for the fact that a bloody cross and an empty tomb shows us that you took our problem and our pain and you owned it. And you died for it and you were abused for it and you were wrongly accused for it and you suffered and you were rejected so that we would have hope. So that we remember those words of Jesus as we sang at the beginning of this service, that where I am, there you may also be. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I pray, Lord, that every person in this place has that hope as they leave here today, knowing that through their trust and faith in Christ, that someday we're going to leave this old world behind and that these present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us in your kingdom. I pray that every person today, Lord, has that hope. So we remember you now, Lord, in everything that you gave, in every way that you loved, in every way that you suffered, so that we could be comforted in knowing that our God has scars. Thank you, Lord, for this time to remember that and to remember that we are loved and that we are the people of hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.